And before we get into our message, uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that the last few weeks we've been going through in this summer a series called Summer in the Miners, and we're going through the minor prophets, and we'll get to that in a minute. But when we start off this morning, I've been looking forward to July for a long, long, long time. And it's not because of the fireworks, although those are great, or the barbecues, and it's not because of this amazing Indiana weather that I will admit I, uh, I, I don't love. So, it's because of one, actually two things, and it's because this is the July of sequels. I don't know how many of you know, but this past weekend, Indiana Jones came out. And uh, yes, now I have not a chance to see it, so nobody give any spoilers, please. Uh, but I've been looking forward to this for years. Uh, people my age, we grew up with Indiana Jones, and it was a hero of ours. And to see this sequel, this continuing chapter, the last in this saga, hopefully, because the guy's like 900 years old. But, but I'm really looking forward to that. And not just Indiana Jones, but this is also a summer of sequels. Coming up in just two weeks is the Mission Impossible sequel. And I'm looking forward to that as well. And so uh, I'm really excited about sequels. Now, movie sequels don't always live up to the originals. Uh, we, we know that. We've seen sequels, and sometimes they're just not as good. There's a lot of reasons why. Uh, usually, see, what we want from a sequel is we want further character development. And oftentimes, there's just, that doesn't happen. We, we don't want things to be too different from the original. You know, it can't go totally different direction, but it has to be something new and exciting. There has to be some new revelations of this character, of the main characters or development in the story. We don't like it when it's just a rehash of the same old, same old, but we also don't want anything too spectacularly different. But in a good sequel, we learn something new about the character. We get to know a different side of that person. Now this summer, as I mentioned, we've been going through the minor prophets. And as I mentioned last week, it's been tough. Probably the toughest thing I've ever had to preach through. And many of you have told me, you've been honest about it, that I made the joke about your pages being stuck together in this section of the Bible. And it's true because some people have said they've never even read these passages of Scripture before. And there's a reason for that. It's tough. It's difficult. But each week we've seen a little different side to God's character. If you've been with us, you've heard this almost every week. The reason we're studying the minor prophets is because the minor prophets help us to clearly see a picture of who God is and who we are. Now, if you remember two weeks ago, we talked about Noah, or about Jonah, I'm sorry, about Jonah. And if you spent much time in Sunday school, you no doubt know at least some of the story. It's one of our favorites. But as we saw, it's not a cute little story about a big fish. It's about one man's desire for revenge and how God loves our enemies as much as we do. But this week, we are in a sequel. We're in a sequel to the book of Jonah. So I encourage you to open up your Bible, not to Micah, where we were last week, but the next book, Nahum. Once again, if you don't know where Nahum is, there's no shame at all in opening the uh, content, table of contents at the beginning of your Bible and finding it. But Nahum is really a sequel to Jonah. We're going to see that in a minute. I mentioned last week that we've got halfway through our study of the minor prophets, and I believe that Micah is placed where he is for a reason. Now, if you remember, although the minor prophets are 12 individual books in our Bible, originally these were all compiled in one called the Book of the Twelve. And so you have God setting the stage, showing his his unending redeeming love in the book of Hosea we started with. 
And we go through a different couple minor prophets, and we came to Jonah. We got the story of a prophet, the man of God, who struggled to grasp God's forgiveness and how God could possibly love such terrible people. Then in Micah last week, we saw the faithlessness of Israel. And the book ends. If you remember last week, it ends with one of the most powerful passages in the Minor Prophets. From the book of Micah. Who is a God like you, who pardons sins and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, for you will tread our sins underneath and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. What an amazing passage of Scripture. And while this is just my interpretation, I believe that Nahum follows for a reason. Jonah is there to help the people and us see that God's love extends to all people, even those who we consider the worst of the worst. God's love and forgiveness extends even to them. And it leaves, if you remember the study of Jonah, God asking Jonah if he should have compassion on thousands of souls. And of course, the question is a rhetorical one. We want to serve a God like that, a God of compassion and forgiveness. Then in the very next book, Micah, we see how God's own people now have fallen away. They had terrible leaders. We saw that last week. We saw how they lacked justice and mercy, kindness, not to their enemies, but to their very own people. And it ends with that verse we just read, when God reminds the people of his character. And immediately following those words of God's mercy and grace, we turn the page and we have the opening verses of Nahum. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Wait, are we talking about the same God who we just read the page before? His unending love who will cast our sins to the bottom of the sea. Which is it? Does he delight in showing mercy and compassion or is he a God filled with wrath? Which is it? And the answer, of course, is what makes the minor prophets so important for us to look at. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's have a little overview of this book of, of Nahum and what the prophet is all about, what this book is all about. The book of Nahum opens up with the people facing the same people we read about in Jonah, Assyria, its capital city, Nineveh. And if you remember when we talked about this with Jonah in the book of Jonah, we saw how horribly awful the people of Nineveh were. More than we could ever, ever really imagine ourselves. History has gone to show us uh, some of the brutality, probably the most brutal people group that ever existed. Skinning people alive, terrorizing their enemies, making mockery of them in grotesque ways that are too much for us to bear. And so these are the people that the book of Nahum is written to. Unlike many of the other prophets that we've looked at that are a prophet addressing Israel, Nahum is addressing Israel, but it's written to the people of Nineveh. This is a message to the people of Nineveh or Assyria. Might use them interchangeably, just like we might say uh, Washington to talk about the United States. 
And we're going to see in the book of Nahum, each week we're encouraging you to read these books as we go. This is one of the shorter ones. You can read it in probably less than 10 minutes. So I encourage you this week to read through the book of Nahum. Also inside your bulletin is a study guide. I really encourage you to dive into that. Uh, They're great questions to help you process what this passage, what this scripture is all about. You can do it with your friend. You can do it with a spouse. You can do it on your own. However you can do that, but I encourage you to look at it. So we're just going to give you a 50,000-foot flyover of the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum opens with a prophecy concerning Nineveh, and then the passage we just read, the Lord is jealous and avenging. He takes vengeance on his foes. And we, we see going throughout this book that who he's speaking to is not Israel, not God's people. He's speaking to the people of Nineveh, and he's declaring a judgment on them. If you remember back in Jonah, he said, God said, you need to repent Turn from your ways, or you'll be destroyed. And what did the people do? The people of Assyria, the people of Nineveh, they turned their hearts toward God. We read about that amazing uh, story in the book of Jonah, about probably the biggest, the most amazing revival that's ever taken place. But about a hundred so years have passed, and things are different for Nineveh. They've fallen back into their own ways. And so we see as we go throughout this book, as you read this, you're going to read some really hard things, some words of the Lord as he spells out what's going to happen to the people of Nineveh. So in the first chapter, we see it's going to be destroyed with a flood that actually came true in 612 B.C. In verse 14, it talks about that flood that's going to uh, destroy them. It says, I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. And Assyria was indeed destroyed in 612 B.C. King Asher Penapel, I'm going to just call him Ash. <laughs> he was so distraught this terrible, wicked king of Nineveh, as his mighty fortress was being attacked, that he set fire to the kingdom. There's fire all talked about, fire references throughout the first and second chapter of Noah, or of Nahum. I don't know why I keep calling him Noah, of Nahum. And these walls were built around the city that kept the Tigris River from from coming in and flooding the city. And those walls were destroyed. And so the kingdom of Assyria was flooded. Assyria, Nineveh, was demolished. It was buried. And the once superpower of the world was never heard of again. God's word came true. The prophecy of Nahum came true. It didn't regroup. It didn't get itself back together. It was destroyed, obliterated, completely gone wiped off the face of the earth. For centuries, other kingdoms were built in the very land where the mighty Assyria once stood. It wasn't until the 1850s that archaeologists even dug it up and found the ancient artifacts that we have today when we really learned and saw firsthand the brutality that they celebrated in their art. They kept records of. Assyria was dead and buried. It was gone. Nineveh heard the haunting words of the Lord that we see in chapter 2, verse 13. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. 
I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on the earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. I am against you. We see again in the next chapter, chapter 3, as God continues to spell out this destruction for Nineveh. In verse 5, he says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. You can just see this. This is insult. You can almost see this playing out. You lift up the skirts of these people. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. Yes, that's what you think it means. That is what you think it means. I will treat you with contempt. I will make you a spectacle. All who see you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is in ruins. Who will mourn for her? Where can I find anyone to comfort you? I am against you. In Romans 8.31, Kira read this for us this morning, the Apostle Paul tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? And in Nahum, we see the flip side of this truth. If God is against us, what hope do we have? Now, this seems really bleak. I want to turn the page back to the God who pardons sins and forgives all our transgressions. And Nahum is a hard book because in it we see the wrath of God. And just like we don't spend a lot of time studying the minor prophets, we don't hear a lot of messages. We don't like to talk a lot about the wrath of God. Remember, this is a sequel. If Jonah was part one, Jonah, the motion picture, then this is Jonah part two, the wrath of God. Some of you nerds get the joke I just made there. The rest of you have no idea. It's a Star Trek reference. But was Jonah right all along? He wanted the destruction of Nineveh. God brought about that destruction. So what was God getting all upset with Jonah about? See, as we've seen and studied the minor prophets, we've seen that God is a God of righteousness and a God of justice. And with that righteousness and justice comes God's wrath. God's wrath is real. We don't like to talk about it. It can make us a little squeamish. Uh, Kira prepared our worship this morning, our musical worship, and, and she tries to theme our songs with things we're talking about. And uh, she had a hard time finding songs about God's wrath. So I wrote one for us. Let's sing it up here on the screens. You're going to see it here. You guys know this tune. The Lord is filled with wrath. He avenges his foes. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Okay, everybody sing the chorus now together. I am against you, against you. Raise your hands. I am against you, I'm against you. Yeah, we don't like this song, do we? <laughs> we don't like to sing songs about God's wrath. Why do we want to celebrate God's wrath? We have a hard time with God being a God of both love and of wrath. They seem at odds with each other. People tend to see God as either one or the other. Is he a God of love or a God of judgment? And the answer is, of course, yes. God loves us and God hates sin. Here's the truth we need to understand from the book of Nahum. God's wrath is not in tension with his love. 
God's wrath, the destruction that he promised that he laid out to the people of Nineveh is not in tension with his love. God's goodness is so perfect and absolute. He wants us to experience his goodness. But because of that great love, his anger burns against sin. See, a God who claimed to be good yet turned a blind eye to injustice, to oppression, to evil, to sin, that wouldn't be a good God. The opposite of love is not wrath. I've heard it said the opposite of love is indifference. The opposite of love is indifference, and we don't want an indifferent God. What do we call parents who just let their kids do whatever they want? Negligent. We don't want to serve a God who's indifferent to us, who just lets us do whatever. Often God's wrath, His anger is brought against us just like we express with our children to correct us. We've seen this theme run throughout our study of the minor prophets. Time and time again, God disciplines His people, but His anger is out of His great love. Proverbs 3.11 tells us, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent His rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. And in Hebrews, you have, have it or, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. See, God unleashed his wrath on Nineveh because of their wickedness. But he didn't find some twisted delight in destroying them. That's some of our views of God's wrath. We think God gets some pleasure in seeing people suffer. But it's because people suffer that God's wrath is needed. Because as we're told, sin cannot go unpunished. G.I. Packer said, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is indeed a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God's wrath, his anger, is not in tension with his love. God's wrath is because of his love. Not so that he can love us. Do you see the difference? But because he loves us. The problem isn't with God's wrath, it's our sin. We read in the opening lines of Micah of God's wrath against Nineveh, or of Nahum against Nineveh, but in the very next verse, it says this, the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. God showed his great love his great patience by giving Nineveh a chance. He's slow to anger. But the guilty have to be punished. That's justice. And he does the same for us. Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some translations might even say, while we were still God's enemies, while we were against 
him. Now, Jesus came and took on himself God's wrath, the rightful, just wrath that we deserved. See, God's wrath and his love aren't at odds with each other. If God didn't have such amazing love for us, he wouldn't have such deep anger and wrath against sin. When we see God as some cosmic angry wizard who just wants to smite us, we've completely missed an understanding of who God is. But that's how many of us see God. There's a popular video game for the iPhone that is actually number one in the world right now. And it's called Pocket God. And in this game, you can play this. Uh, you can play, it's very comical. It's kind of set up like a cartoon as a God over these people. And the different things that you can do to them, you can hurl, uh, you know, volcanoes, you can explode the world, you can have lightning strike them, you can have all of these terrible things, God smiting the people. There's also one or two nice things you can do, but most of them are these terrible things that you can unleash on these people, and as you do that, you get more points. And that's how many of us see God, this angry God who just wants to smite all the people around us. And when our view of God is an angry old man who wants to smite us, we have just as much misunderstanding of who God is as those of us who might see God as this gentle, passive pushover who just wants everybody to get along and just let you do whatever you want. Remember, that's indifference. God is both a God of love and a God of wrath. See, Jesus didn't come to calm down the angry God and remind God of his love. John Stott said this, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. God does not love us because Christ died for us. That's not why. He loves us. He died because God loves us. So what was God's problem with, Nin with Jonah's desire to see him destroy Nineveh? See, Jonah wanted Nineveh's own destruction to satisfy his own desire to see them pay. Jonah wanted revenge, or what we might call retaliation. And God is not a God of revenge. God is a God of retribution. Do you know the difference between retaliation and retribution? Retaliation is giving someone something because they did it to you. Retribution is making things right giving people what they owed, what they deserve. His love has to make things right. We've seen this recurring themes in the past few books, that God is a God of justice, and with that justice comes judgment. And if you're on the wrong side of that, like Nineveh was, there is God's wrath, but it's God's wrath, not yours. It's not my wrath. Romans 12 tells us, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. See, Jonah wanted retaliation, but God brings retribution. Is God a God of wrath or a God of justice? Yes. God is both the God of wrath and the God of mercy. Nahum shows us that God's wrath is real. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. But there's another lesson we can learn from Nahum and the people of Nineveh. 
And that's that we are all prone to drifting. We're all prone to drifting. How could Nineveh experience the greatest revival in history? They repented. Remember, we're told that the kings, everyone repented. He even made the cows repent, if you remember that. They turned from their wicked ways, from their brutality and violence, and turned towards God. They expressed real change in both their actions and their heart. Remember, that's one of the key themes we've been talking about, is that God doesn't want us to just do the right things. He wants a change of our heart. Now, how could they go from repentance to this? Assyria repented of their repentance. Repentance is turning away. They turned away again from the right, from the godly practices and turned back towards evil. Nineveh had drifted from God. And while we don't have any insight really into what caused this, we can see that they went from being the most violent, oppressive, brutal kingdoms to ever exist to expressing grief and sorrow over their sins. And in the course of just over a hundred years, turn back to being one of the most violent, oppressive, brutal kingdoms to ever exist. While we don't know exactly what went down, I imagine that it was a slow erosion. Slowly over time, the people of Nineveh started to pick up their old habits. And slowly, great-grandparents are looking at the world their grandchildren live in And it looks nothing like it did when Jonah came to visit Nineveh. See, no one can be grandfathered into the faith. Our relationship with God is our own. While it's great that we have a legacy behind us for many of us of growing up in a Christian home, of having a relationship with God, that doesn't save our children. No one is grandfathered into the faith. That's why it's so important for us to reach the next generation, amen? We read in the story of the minor prophets, and there's only a few pages, one to be exact, between God's mercy and forgiveness in Jonah to God's wrath and destruction of Nineveh. We just turn a page, but there's a hundred or so years between these events, and a lot can happen in a hundred years. Now, this weekend, we celebrate our nation's independence. What was our independence? What was it from? Oppression? Tyranny? Not having religious freedoms? And we rightly celebrate that our nation, even with its flaws, still offers freedoms that most of the world doesn't share. But how long did it take for America to drift? We weren't off the boat very long before we were oppressing and brutalizing others. A lot less than 100 years. Our nation was founded on the principle of justice. It's in our pledge. And America, just like Nineveh, and just like we saw in our study of Joel, all nations will one day be judged before God. We know how it ended for Nineveh. I think the jury might still be out on how it will end for America. Because we're all prone to drifting. But think about your own life. Have you ever made a change in your life only to go back to the way you once were? Why do we do this? Because we're prone to drifting. It's easy to fall back into our old way of life. Maybe you started coming to church and you started reading your Bible, but a month went by and your life didn't radically change. 
Maybe you've been working on your marriage and it didn't miraculously get fixed. Maybe you came to the Lord, but you're still struggling financially. Maybe you've made a commitment to invest in your marriage, but now you're separated or divorced. You started going to church and really taking your faith seriously, and then you got sick. And you think, it's not working, or it's not worth it. And so you're tempted to just drift. It usually starts with something small. You make an excuse not to come to church anymore, to be around your Christian brothers and sisters. You start reading, you stop reading your Bible. A day goes by, days, and then weeks, and then months, and you haven't prayed. You're still a good person, but you're drifting. And before you know it, you're down a path that you once had left behind. You've said things you wished you wouldn't have said. You've done things that you wish you hadn't have done. You fell back into that old way of life because we're all prone to drifting. Now, as we've been looking at the minor prophets, we've seen each week how the name of the messenger relates to the message that God has for his people. And this week is no exception. The name Nahum means comforter. Now, this seems really odd for the messenger who begins his message with the destruction with the wrath of God. But Nineveh's destruction did bring comfort to the people of Israel. We're told in Mahum 3, at the end of the book, that nothing can heal you. It's God speaking to Nineveh. Your wound is fatal. In other words, it's too late. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Nineveh's time had come. They had their chance. Our God who is slow to anger and abounding in love is the same God who we're told, right in these verses we've read, cannot let the guilty go unpunished. But Nineveh wasn't the only ones in this story to drift. If you remember, last week we talked about Micah. And in the book of Micah, God's people, they weren't living for him either. They had drifted from the one true God. Their leaders had forsaken God. Their temple had been destroyed, and their covenant between God and his people was just a story that they might have told their grandkids. God's law had all but been forgotten. But that was going to change. In what might have been a scene actually from Indiana Jones, King Josiah, the first good king God's people had had in a long time, finds the ruins of the destroyed temple. And they uncover the law. Moses' law, God's law. They dig up basically their Bibles. They find them buried in rubble. And King Josiah ushers in a reform, a drifting back to God for the people of Israel. In Nahum 1.15, there is some hope for the people of Israel. It says, look, they're on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. This is both good news for the people of Israel, and this foreshadows the good news of Jesus for us today. This is the comfort that Nahum's message brings the people of God. God has heard their cries. He will bring comfort and peace. 
And this came true for the people of Israel and Judah. Assyria was wiped out. We read about the prophecies of that in Nahum, never to be heard of again. But it didn't happen immediately. There's still some time between what the people of Israel read in Nahum, his announcement of the coming destruction of Nineveh and it actually taking place. And God says in the passage we just read, be faithful. Celebrate my goodness. You found me again. Now get back to following me. You know, we might not see God's wrath pour out against the wicked in our time, but our God is a God of justice. And his wrath is a proportional response to his love. There's no oppressor that can defeat his great love. There's no disease. There's no broken relationship. There's no sin. There's no sin in my own life. The sin that I keep coming back to, that I keep drifting towards, there's nothing that God can't take care of. God will defeat evil. Good will win. We can celebrate if we follow him. But there is a time coming just like for Nineveh where it'll be too late. See, I'm grateful for God's wrath. I want to serve a God of justice. But I'm so glad that God's love was so great for me that he didn't want me to experience his wrath. I'm so glad that Jesus came and took the wrath of God, that same wrath that he had for the people of Nineveh, that same wrath that he had for the people of Israel, that same wrath that he has for me. I'm so glad that he placed that on the cross. God's love and God's justice, they're not in opposition to each other. I mean, his his wrath, his love and his wrath aren't opposites of each other. We are so glad to be able to serve a God who is a God of justice, who will not let evil see unpunished, but praise be to God that he made a way through Jesus for us to not experience that punishment. Let's pray together. God, as we read this book this week, it's tough. This is, it's bleak. There's a lot of things in this passage, Lord, in this book of Nahum that that might make us feel depressed hearing of the wrath that you pour out on your enemies. But God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who will not let the guilty go unpunished. That you so love us that you cannot stand to see sin in the world. But God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you made a way for us to have a life with you, to be accepted by you, to no longer be covered by that sin, but but covered by the blood of Jesus. God, we thank you for your wrath, but we praise you and give you thanks for your mercy that you pour on each and every one of us. Lord, I pray for those of us this week as we read this passage and as we meditate on it, that you would call to mind the the ways that we might be drifting, even just slowly moving away from you. Lord, we might not consider ourselves your enemies, living as terrible as the Assyrians. But Lord, we know that sin cannot go unpunished. So Lord, help us to repent, to draw back to you. Lord, for those in this room who maybe have not made the commitment to follow Jesus, to accept that free gift that you have given us, freedom in you, to be free from that sin, to not be afraid of your wrath, but to have comfort in your love. Lord, I pray that you would draw them towards you.
God, may we be people who recognize that you are the God of justice, the God of wrath, and the God of love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. The church together said,